Well, we are beginning a series tonight that will just be for the month of February. Uh, we do have, I guess, no matter what, you got four Sundays, four, uh, four Wednesdays in February. I'm guessing that's the month where you can't have a fifth Sunday social in a life group uh, for February, but we will have four Wednesdays out of it. A series called Hope in Dark Places. And what I mean by that is that there's several passages of Scripture that as you are in interaction with perhaps young folks, uh, perhaps folks who are new to Christianity or new to the understanding of what the Bible teaches from any number of different areas, you might have interactions with folks that there are passages in the Bible uh, that if not clearly, or clearly understood can be one of the most difficult places uh, to navigate in, in the text. And so for the purposes of this month, what I hope to do is to allow us to dive into some of the Bible passages that in our own hearts and lives, in the lives of those that we love, perhaps are those challenging passages of Scripture. You know, the Bible challenges us, and at times it warns us, but by the grace of Jesus Christ, it never drives us to despair. And when we've been driven to despair, thankfully, something is wrong in our understanding, in our hearts, in our, our way of approaching. And so what I hope to do is to get a chance to dive into some passages that uh, if you are, are, have ever wrestled with these, looked at these, you might say, you know what, this is a passage that has uh, caused me to lose a little bit of sleep or, or what it might be. We're, we come tonight to a passage in Hebrews chapter six. And so I'd invite you, if you got your Bible, go ahead and open that up as well. And uh, several of our ladies uh, have been going through Hebrews, quite a few ladies in, in Bible study. And so is uh, thinking through that side of things for so many in our church that we're going to be walking through Hebrews. I said, you know what, it'd be great for us here and now before some of them make it to some of these passages in Hebrews. We won't be in Hebrews completely these Wednesday nights. Uh, but to start off, most folks, if you were to tell, ask them to say, what are the Bible passages that concern you the most? Two that will inevitably come up in that are Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10. You'll have other passages, perhaps Romans 9, passages in Revelation, uh, you know, 1 John 5. You'll have different pieces where people might reference, but, uh, but he, these Hebrews passages uh, come up. And so I've got you a handout tonight. Now I said, don't despair. You got a front and a back tonight. You know, there's ladies in here that are excited knowing they got more, and there's men who said, I don't know if I'm ready for a two-sided handout. So, you know, trust the Lord, let him go with you, and, uh, and we're gonna navigate that tonight. But I want to be able to give some context to the book of Hebrews that many of you, I'm sure, already know, but I think is helpful when you come to the passage to remember, you know what, this letter wasn't written to me as a primary audience. It was written to another primary audience. It has much to say to us, but we have to understand it in the context of who it was written to, when it was written, and why it was written. And so I want to be able to sort of navigate just a little bit of that right off the bat. So you got your hand out there on the front side, you can see the title at the top, and I've got a note there on uh, context, and you might, um, you know, right off the bat say, well, here, here's the, the biggest, you know, duh of the night in some ways, but the book of Hebrews was written to the Hebrews. You might not know that, that's, that's a, you know, million dollar question right there on a game show. The book of Hebrews was written to the Hebrews or Jewish folks uh, coming only from an Old Testament background. That the audience for this letter the title that comes down to it, we don't know who it was written by. If you go to Bible colleges and seminaries, that's the things guys get in fistfights over at seminaries is who wrote Hebrews, you know? 
But, um, but we won't do that tonight. There's folks who have different you know, ideas about who that might be, but we won't find out until we get to heaven. The author is unknown, but the recipients are known. The Jewish people was the, uh, the intended audience of this letter. And so the first point that I've got there is, is Jewish folks coming from an Old Testament background, many of them coming out of what we would refer to now as Judaism and entering into the reality that their Messiah had come. You know, Jesus didn't come to call people out of Judaism into Christianity. I don't know if you realize that. He came to tell them everything that you have learned so far and known has been fulfilled in me. And so, the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecy is Christ. And so he didn't come to redirect them to a new promise. He came to have them understand the fulfillment of their promise was he himself. And so writing to the Hebrews, the author and to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit calls them into an understanding, but they are coming uh, from a place of, uh, of, of an Old Testament background being raised in Jewish society and culture. The second thing is that this letter is written at a time of increased persecution when many were deciding whether to remain or to return to Judaism. When you are in a situation where you can follow the Lord in the way that you understood for most of your life and it won't cost you your life, it won't cost the lives of your children and your spouse and your family members and your community, it becomes real attractive for many to say, you know what, if I just step backward a ways, I wouldn't have the same challenges, the same struggles and the same danger that I have walking through what I'm walking through here, having trusted in Jesus as the Messiah. And so the writer of Hebrews is speaking into the people to say, you can't just go back and forth. You can't go forward and then abandon Jesus and move backward back into Judaism, thinking that there's something that would be there for you. You've got to keep uh, with the faith. And so this passage today that we come to is written in light of that. And we'll look at that uh, here in just a moment. Now, uh, I do want to read one thing for you. You've got a picture at the bottom of your page there of a guy sitting in a jail cell and you're thinking, what in the world is that all about? I don't know how many of you have ever read Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. It, at one time, it was the most published book in the world outside of the Bible. I think in recent decades it's been surpassed, but at one time it was the most published and distributed book. Great story. John Bunyan writes from prison. Many of you know the, the story behind this, but he writes uh, Christian's story as an allegory of the Christian life that uh, Christian comes under conviction when he is able to read the scripture. There's a giant load that appears on his back that he is weighed down with, and this load of sin is only set free when he comes to the cross where Jesus had died. And then looking upon the cross and, and being there where Jesus had paid the ultimate sacrifices, he comes to Christ. This load of sin rolls away and into a tomb never to be seen again. So great imagery throughout this book. Just before Christian goes to the area where uh, the cross uh, is, he is in a place of a, uh, called the house of the interpreter, and he sees several visions in that house. Now, interestingly enough, one of the visions that he sees is a man in an iron cage. I want to read you just a bit of the, uh, the narrative of, as Christian encounters this man in an iron cage. Christian asked interpreter, what does this mean? Interpreter told him to talk with the man. Then Christian asked the man, who are you? The man answered, I am uh, what I once was not. Well, what were you before? 
At one time, I was a man who professed Christ and whose faith was pure and growing, not only in my own eyes, but also in the eyes of others. I was, so I thought, fit for the celestial city and even felt joy when I thought of my arrival there. Well, what are you now? asked Christian. I'm now a man of despair. I'm locked up in it as I am in this iron cage. I cannot get out. Oh, I cannot. I ceased to watch and be sober. I allowed myself to be driven by my lusts. I sinned against the light of the Word and the goodness of God. I've grieved the Holy Spirit and He's gone from me. I allowed an opening for the devil and He's come to me. I've provoked God to anger and He has left me. I've hardened my heart that I cannot repent. I've crucified Jesus to myself afresh. I've despised His very person. I've despised His righteousness. I've counted His blood as an unholy thing. I've shown utter contempt for the Spirit of grace. Therefore, I've shut myself out from all the promises and nothing remains for me but threatenings, dreadful threatenings, fearful threatenings of certain judgment and fiery wrath which shall consume me as an adversary. Light reading before bed, right? When people read Pilgrim's Progress, usually the most challenging scene in the book for folks is what I've just read. Christian has shown a man that by all implication, Bunyan was a Baptist, but it seems to be in the writing that was given that this man in the iron cage had stepped backward in his walk in such a way that he lost fellowship with God. And in that, it seems that from what Bunyan writes, he was no longer a part of the kingdom. He was no longer a Christian, and it was unavailable to him to, uh, to, to be able to believe and to find repentance and grace again. By God's grace, I believe Bunyan was wrong. And I believe that uh, many in that time, while very fearful about losing their salvation, it, it really, there is something at the root of us to the very core that even though we understand that we cannot earn our salvation, if we're not careful, we'll think it's up to us to keep it. John MacArthur once said, if you could lose your salvation, you would. And I think he's right. Now, we will talk a little bit about the warnings that are meant to heed in this passage tonight, but I'm going ahead and showing you the cards a little bit this evening. I want you to be encouraged because as we walk through this passage, what we will see in it, I believe, is both a warning as well as an assurance. And it's important that we see both. You might know something about Roman history and early Christianity. The first 300 years of Christian history, they were running for their lives. They were being fed to lions. They were being lit on fire and used as torches for Roman parties. All sorts of awful things where Christians were meeting in the catacombs to have their services. We get nervous if the air conditioning goes out in our building and ask, can we keep meeting? And they were meeting in an underground graveyard by torchlight under threat of death. And so for the people in that era, for the first 300 years, there was a, a, a real danger to being a, identified with Christ off and on, but much, much persecution. That changed in a big way when a man named Constantine came to the Roman throne. And when he became emperor, kind of a long story, but he, it's believed, became a Christian. He never seemed to deepen his faith very much. And Constantine believed what some Christians at the time believed is that after you became a believer, after you were baptized, you got one sin. That was it. Constantine waited until his deathbed to be baptized because he knew he couldn't keep that. And guess what? You and I can't either. The hope of the gospel is not Jesus brought you this far 
and you're going to have to do the rest. But as we, you know, talk about what it means for us to know Christ, to trust Christ, the book of Ephesians from the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that we have been saved by grace through faith and that not of works. The Bible goes on to say, not that we're saved by good works, but we've been saved unto good works. Good works are fruit, but we can't manufacture them ourselves, and we certainly can't maintain our spiritual standing through anything that we would do. We come to Hebrews chapter 6, and there's three interpretations which are most common in the way that people view this passage. I've given you those on your page here down at the bottom. I'll come back to those passages on eternal security in just a moment. But number one, as I've just mentioned, there are many throughout history who have come to this passage and in a quick reading that they feel that this is teaching uh, that it describes someone losing their salvation. It describes someone losing their salvation. Now, uh, interestingly enough tonight as well, we'll sort of go ahead and you know, just lay this out on the table. In different denominations and Christian traditions, when the question is asked, is it possible for me to lose my salvation, there's actually a significant divide between many Christian denominations. So based on where you might have come from tonight, there might be some sense of, uh, I didn't know we believed that, or I didn't know I used to believe that, or they never told me this, or you know, whatever it might be, this might hit you different ways this evening, that's okay. And uh, you can refer all questions to Pastor Brandon, he's excited, ready to go, and I'm just kidding. So we, we've got this question is a central question that different denominations have answered differently. You know, those who tend to answer the question, can Christians lose their salvation? No, uh, is most Baptists, with the exception of free will Baptists. It would be another discussion for another, uh, another night whether free will Baptists are truly, there's a number of things that aren't Baptist about them in their theology, uh, but, uh, but most Baptists would say no. Presbyterians, Reformed, Lutherans, uh, the Calvary Chapel movement is probably the most common modern movement that has a, an answer to no of that question. And then there's also some who would say yes, it is possible uh, for a Christian to lose their salvation. And so uh, many of the, the Wesleyan lines, um, Wesleyan, Methodist, uh, Pentecostal and Charismatic, um, those, those lines of churches, Church of Christ slash Christian Church, uh, Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox, there were, there, Eastern Orthodox, there would be a way in which they would answer the question to say, well, it is possible to lose your salvation under such and such a circumstance. Some of them would draw that line a little bit different. And so... Um, maybe that helps you shape as you're here tonight to say, okay, well, if I come to this with a certain presumption, there might be some level of that. What I would like to do tonight is not try to say, well, we're Baptists, so here's how we're going to read the Bible. What I would like and what I hope to do is to be able to say, this is what the Bible seems to teach and, and by, by its most you know, clear context of what's given. Here's what the Bible says. And from that, we can be Baptist. And so that's my hope, to get the cart, you know, in the right place with the horse, uh, the horse if you get what I'm saying. Now, sometimes, too, we, we think about pendulums in, in, you know, Christian life. This is a poorly illustrated by myself, you know, kind of a mountain with two cliffs on either side. You know, it's possible to fall off on either side. Y'all ever seen a pendulum at the children's museums that, you know, all day long they swing back and forth. If you've got a grandfather clock at home, it's got a pendulum. Sometimes there's a bit of a spectrum where people find themselves. And so it's important for us as well to, to sort of establish at the beginning that for us, we, uh, we often say that uh, Jesus 
is, uh, is extending an offer to us to be our Savior and our Lord. In reality, He is Lord, regardless of whether we want to claim Him or not, but whether we're going to accept Him as Lord of our life and whether we're going to repent and turn to Him as our Savior. Uh, there's, um, you know, a sort of a distinction. If we're not careful, we can lean on one side a little bit heavier than the other. Some of you who got saved at a young age, I would be in that category that I realized I needed a Savior. Uh, God had to work on me a little bit to bring me to a place where Jesus was becoming more and more my Lord. But there's a way in which sometimes if we get going the wrong direction, we can lean too hard to say, well, I'm fine with Jesus being my Savior. I'm just not willing for him to be the Lord of my life. And that's a problem if we feel that way. The scripture would challenge us in that and call us to a right level of repentance and relationship with our Savior. At the same time, there's others who would say, well, I'm okay with Jesus being my Lord and I'm doing so good, I don't think I need a Savior. And we'd also be wrong there. That out of pride, we would somehow come to a point to say, well, yeah, I, Jesus is my Lord and he ought to be these other people's over here, Lord. And I can tell from looking at them, they, you know, and so we can get out of balance real quick on either one of those things. And so when we come to Hebrews 6, we also need to be reminded of the fact uh, that the call there is for these folks to recognize Jesus not only as their Savior, not only as their Lord, but as Savior and Lord. Sometimes in, um, you know, thinking through terms, uh, you know, when we tend to fall into a Lord-only understanding, that points us more into the legalistic side. Here's what I've earned. Here's what I'm done. What I've done. Here's how I'm good enough that I don't need this, or I'm better than this other person, or, or anything like that. If we lean so hard that way, we will risk the, the the risk of falling off the cliff on that side. The other side is what tends to be called easy believe it believism. I don't know if you've ever heard that term before, but just this idea of someone saying, "Oh yeah, I believe there's a God. I believe Jesus is who He says He is." That there's a head knowledge that happens with that that never translates into our hearts and our hands and our feet. And when there's been no change that's taken place, the question becomes, is Jesus Lord of all? Is he Lord at all? Because if Jesus is not Lord of all, then he's not Lord at all. And so for us to be able to look at our own lives, the question then becomes to follow Jesus uh, what does it mean uh, to have that take fruit in my life? You remember Jesus telling the story of the parable of the sower, uh, that there were seeds scattered in many different places and it only took root uh, in certain areas and that, that showed the fact that there were those who would receive the word of God. They would even at times walk in a certain manner, but it wasn't long before it showed that truly something real hadn't taken place in their heart and life. And so there are some who believe that this passage describes losing the salvation. The second thing, is that this passage is sometimes seen as a hypothetical warning to, believe, to uh, believers about what could happen but won't happen. That it's a warning to say to believers, if you're truly a believer, this won't happen to you, but be very careful how you walk uh, because this is the warning of what could happen if you uh, were to abandon. But all, you know, Jesus in John 10, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. That there's a mark of a disciple by the fact that they know the master's voice and uh, they, they, they follow him. And then the third thing, this is where I fall, is it's a warning to those who've never been truly saved. It's a warning to those who've never been truly saved. So you're probably thinking right now, Jonathan, can we just read the passage? Yes, yes we can. Hebrews chapter six, we're gonna start with verse one, and I'm gonna read through verse 12. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ 
and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it's cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Can we pray together? Lord, will you help us tonight to see the warning and at the same time the blessing? Uh, will you help us tonight, Lord, to not lean on you only as Savior or only as Lord, but to see your vital role in both of those areas? And so in any way, Lord, that you would be challenging us to redirect, to be faithful, to be steadfast, and to be vigilant, would you continue to drive home that in our hearts and lives. And Lord, for the ways in which our hearts would despair, the ways in which we would look at our own life and we see the uh, ways that we cannot measure up to Jesus Christ. Lord, would you assure us that you know that we can't measure up to Jesus Christ as well? Would you remind us of the hope of the gospel and would you drive home that great truth that when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within that upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin? So, Father, we thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it's been said that Satan loves to make lost people feel saved and saved people feel lost. And we, uh, we come to a passage of Scripture tonight that has been a battle for many through the years. Uh, to really ask that question, am I good enough? Have I done enough? Have I kept enough? Have I done this or that? And so I think it's best perhaps on this front side, the part that I skipped so far, to also mention some passages on eternal security. These are just a couple. Uh, eternal security in the South is sometimes referred to as once saved, always saved. Uh, it's uh, referred to in more formal circles by perseverance of the saints. Whatever term you wanna use, uh, there's a way in which the Bible speaks numerous times to the fact that we who are in Christ are secured and we are held uh, in his hand. John 10, Jesus in verses 28 and 29 says this, I will give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Romans chapter eight, verses one and two, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You remember what Jesus said, when the son has set you free, you are free indeed, or you are free all the way. You aren't halfway free, you're all the way free. 
One of the things I remember my grandfather saying before he went home to be with the Lord is, you know, God doesn't give temporary eternal life. Give it and take it back. You won't find that in the Bible, but I thought it was a good, good phrase from him. And so we come then to the passage tonight, and let's just jump onto the back side of the sheet here, mention a few things. You know, while you're turning there, one of the things my family likes is a, is a good video game from time to time. I remember substituting in a high school a few years ago, and when I got to the front of the class, one of the students raised their hand and said, you look like you enjoy a good video game. I guess that meant my face was a little rounder than it should be or something. You know, teenagers and old people, you're never sure what they're going to say to you, you know, when you go up. They might get some honesty. But, uh, but you, you got that sense of just, oh, okay, we enjoy that. One of the games that, um, that they like to play is a game called The Legend of Zelda. That game's had a bunch of different iterations through the years. And uh, probably one of the newer games at our house is, is a, a Legend of Zelda game uh, called Breath of the Wild. And you can run through this whole land. I mean, it looks almost like running through a painting. It's just, you know, really, really nice. And you, you sort of, world's wide open. You can go explore and do different things. They kept wanting me to try it. But I'm not in their generation, you know, it's a little bit too newfangled. I, I'd played some Legend of Zelda games on Nintendo when I was coming up. Let me show you the Legend of Zelda I keep going back to and playing. It doesn't, doesn't look quite like the, the other one, does it? Now I say that to say to you that um, the writer of Hebrews is communicating to the Jewish people who are considering going back to what they've come from at the sacrifice of leaving behind the gift of the gospel and the hope and worth and majesty and completion of what Jesus has done. And it made even less sense than anything we could do with a video game. The first point that I would have for you here tonight is the old covenant of the Old Testament was not enough for salvation. The writer of Hebrews is gonna drive this point home again and again and again. These were shadows to point forward to the light who was coming. Now that the light has come, there is no longer any hope in the shadows. You can't go backwards. The old covenant of the Old Testament was not enough for salvation. The opening verses of chapter six are not speaking about uh, what we might identify quickly with some of the language. You know, I'm always keenly aware when I get a chance to teach or preach on a passage that includes the word stoned. You know, John chapter 8, where we have the woman caught in adultery who's brought before those who are ready to stone her. I'm always keenly aware when I teach on a passage that includes that word, I've always got to tell the young adults in the room this has nothing to do with drugs. Because in our day and age, the way that that word is used is when we use that word, that's what's naturally thought of. Now, I am thankful nobody's throwing rocks at us as a you know, form of public you know, discipline anymore. But the language sometimes, if we're not careful, we can miss. Now, the first thing that's important for us to understand in shaping this too is that there is nowhere in the Bible that tells us to abandon a basic elementary, foundational understanding of the gospel. And this passage is no exception. If we were to interpret the opening verses that it's time to leave behind the elementary, foundational message of the gospel and move forward, we would be completely missing what the biblical author has said. And so this is not referring to leaving the basic message of Jesus and moving forward into something complex. This is leaving the basic message of the Old Testament and the language that's used there is meant to call us into that. 
elementary teachings about, and some of your translations have the word the there, I think that's helpful, about the Christ. And so not saying Christ as identifying with Jesus, but the message of the promised Messiah who was to come. The elementary teachings about who he was, because you know what? When you have elementary teachings with some bit of understanding, but then you have the Messiah who has come, we should listen to his voice in order to correctly understand the elementary teachings. And so for those who were able to know and experience Jesus and live in the day and age where he had been there, we don't need to go backwards and say, well, let's go back to what they said about that Messiah that's gonna come someday. No, leave that behind. The Messiah has come. So do not go to the elementary teachings, not laying a foundation again of repentance from dead works and, uh, and, and, and of faith toward God. So this is describing a sacrificial system of dead works, to bringing in animals and doing these other things, having some way in which to make penance. This is not repentance in the way that Christ is called to, but the repentance is part of the sacrificial system. The elementary teaching about, well, this hope is to come and it's not here yet, so we're gonna go back to these principles. Now we've got verse two and of instruction about washings. Um, Some of your translations might say baptism, but the word that's used here, baptismos, is not the same as the word that's used to describe Christian baptism, baptizo. This is not referring to Christian baptism, but to the washings, the ceremonial washings of part of the purification system. Don't go back to think if you wash your hands in the water pots on the way way in the house that this is going to clean you. Uh, you know, and make you holy before God. Remember Jesus taking those ceremonial washing pots in John 2 and making the water in them turn into wine? He didn't do that just to keep the party going. He did that in order to show that he was the new wine that wasn't going to be poured into the old wineskins. That Jesus has come to take the place of that which came before and the laying on of hands. Once again, that's what we think of, right? That's got to be a Christian term. Actually, no. This is part of the sacrificial system as well. The laying on of hands in order to transfer your sin to an animal or to take part in, uh, in part of the, the rite of going through that process. And so in all of this, all of this elementary perspective and even going on to say the elementary perspective on eternity from the Old Testament, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. If you were to go into the Old Testament and without the New Testament, try to come up with an understanding of eternity and the hope that we have, you will be without a great majority of the explicit teaching in the Bible about the hope that is to come and what it means for us to stand before the Lord someday. Christ gave a window and a light into that that is, you can't take it away, you can't remove it and have a foundation left that's anything like what we have through what's been revealed in the New Testament. And so the writer to Hebrews is saying, this is not something you can simply walk away from and move backwards. The old covenant of the Old Testament was not enough for salvation and uh, it has been replaced, it has been fulfilled by what Christ has done. Number two, it's possible to taste God at work without being saved. And it can be spiritually deadly to harden our hearts to God's work. I remember some years ago, I had a young man who came up after a service, the invitation, just weeping. And I remember him looking at me, taking my hand and and saying, "Um, I've got a real problem with alcohol. And I just, I need, I need to get right with God. I I need that. And I talked to him for a little while. We prayed together. We needed a longer conversation. 
And I can't remember the exact circumstances, but I know that we were moving into either some kind of meal uh, as a church or some sort of other, something like that. And to my shame, what I said to him was, I'm going to reach out to you and we are going to talk about this tomorrow and we're going to spend time together going through this because I want to, I want to follow up with you. And I was wrong to have done that. Because what happened, much like the good Samaritan who was on the side of the road and the priest just passed right by on the other side, is that for the sake of whatever meeting, whatever thing was scheduled, I, I put off this young man. I called him the next day and I began to talk to him and I said, hey, I wanted to just get a time that we could sit down and talk about the things you shared yesterday. He said, nah, man, I'm good. And that was it. When God is at work in the heart and we choose to turn from that, there's a great amount of harm that takes place. Now, what's being discussed in the book of Hebrews here in chapter 6 is not quite the same thing as what I said, but it is discussing someone who has been able to see God at work, to experience what he's doing, to, you know, the language that's used here, he's been enlightened. There's something going on in our mind to realize that what's being told is true. We've tasted the heavenly gift. I believe that's meant to refer to Jesus. Uh, because the Holy Spirit is mentioned right after. And so the, the heavenly gift, what greater heavenly gift do we have than Christ? But we've tasted of the heavenly gift. We've felt, we've experienced, we've seen uh, His work and the work of the Holy Spirit. We've tasted of God's Word in eternity. There's been supernatural movement there. And so the writer of Hebrews then comes to a verse where he says, verse 5, "...have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come." and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. They say, he says that's impossible to renew them again. Now there's a couple reasons for that. The most basic, obvious reason would be, well, it's impossible to renew again something that hasn't happened the first time in the way that it should. But what's also being said here is if the gospel at work in every way that Jesus and the action of the Holy Spirit works in the human heart, if that's not enough to draw someone to Christ and to keep them there in salvation, then what more do you want? What circus act are you waiting for in order to be able to trust Christ when you've experienced this and this and this and this? And then there's a warning to say that there's a hardening of a heart that takes place when God is at work in our own hearts and we say no to that, it, it runs the risk of being irreparable damage. Not because God closes the door, but much like Pharaoh, who I know we're going to go on to see more and more about, that heart keeps getting harder and colder and deader, and you're going to have a much harder time. But even though the word is impossible is used, I'm so thankful for what Jesus said. You remember when he spoke to the disciples about the rich young ruler, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And so there's not a time where we draw breath where God says, nope, it's too late. That door's not open for you anymore. No, but our own heart can get in the way in such a way that we find it impossible. The people who are in this passage have seen and experienced things uh, that, that have been very real. You know, this is in the time period where the early church in the book of Acts, and so you've got things that are going on uh, miraculous that are almost seeming normal at this point. They've experienced so much. And yet even then to say, well, I just don't know if we want to stay in this. That indicates something that's really wrong about their heart. And then they come to a phrase where, uh, where it says, they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. 
Now, if you're like me, there may have been at some point where you encountered this passage for the first time, and as you looked at that, what seemed to be the way that that passage was to be taken is that when we sin to a certain level, we in essence are crucifying the Son of God all over again, or He's going to have to come back and die all over again because the only amount of sin that He gave us was up to a certain point, and we, we can't go past that. We're actually, we'd be missing what's said here, I believe, if we were to say that. The writer is not saying you've done so much now that Jesus would have to come back and die again because the sacrifice that he made wasn't enough. He's saying you are doing exactly what for some of them their fathers and for some of them they themselves had done. Remember the Hebrews at this time were the very people who were in the midst of Jesus here on earth walking, doing ministry, teaching, preaching, healing, raising from the dead. And after all of that, when you come to the passion narrative, you see them calling out, his blood be upon us and our children, give us Barabbas. And so this is the generation to which the writer is writing in to say, do you remember how we've made this mistake before? And we dare not need to make it again. Because it is, you know, remember the guilt and the shame, not, well, not the guilt, but the shame that Jesus was subjected to, the contempt, the way in which he did this on our behalf. Do you realize how wrong we were to be party to that and to want something else other than the Messiah who was given to us? If you walk away after experiencing and seeing all that you have, what you are doing is walking that same path all over again. And so the warning comes down to the people to not deal lightly with the Lord Jesus. Now, one of the places where we most clearly will see the hope that is in the passage is in the metaphor that comes afterwards. Number three, crops don't change midstream, but time and rain reveal what was planted. Crops don't change midstream, but time and rain reveal what was planted. Land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God, but if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. It's not that the crop started its fruit and became thorns and thistles. No, it was that at the very beginning. It's just that over time, the fruit reveals the root, doesn't it? That what you've got here is the rain and the land and the core of who they are that gets revealed over time. Our lives are the canvas by which God is painting, and our lives show whether Jesus is our Lord or ultimately whether we have not made that decision. That we've been saved unto good works, that our lives show. We're not called to look and say, well, that person must be and that person must not be. Everybody's life is different. God's working in different ways, but we're called to have fruit, to bear fruit. And what's revealed over time is shown uh, about whether Uh, we are in Christ or not, but not whether we once were one thing and then later became another. The book of 1 John says it this way, they went out from us because they were not of us. And so to walk away indicates something at the root, something uh, that uh, was not what it should have been in the very beginning. Crops don't change midstream, but time and rain reveal what was planted. Last thing tonight, number four, Warnings are meant to wake us up, but also to encourage the faithful. Warnings are meant to wake us up, but also encourage the faithful. Please don't hear tonight as you leave, if you, if you, <laughs> if you quote me and say, well, Pastor Jonathan said we shouldn't be scared of anything in the Bible. Well, to a certain extent, yes. But also we need to heed the warnings 
that are given to us to say, don't fall prey to simply disregarding what Christ has done. Don't deal with that lightly. Don't make grace, grace cheap because it costs Jesus everything. But recognize that his grace makes up for where we fall short. Warnings are meant to wake us up, but also to encourage the faithful. The last few verses that come after this passage that we read, verses 9 through 12, uh, tells us that, that the writer feels sure of better things. The Holy Spirit speaking in that same way to us through that author's pen to say, we feel sure of better things for you. That for each of us, we are not only, not only have we been saved, we are being saved. You remember what Peter said in 1 Peter about when we come to heaven someday and we will obtain the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. That we were saved at one point and at the same time we are being saved in Christ that God's working on us. We're not who we should be, but by God's grace, we're not who we once were. God's work on the inside of us is making all the difference. We feel sure of better things, and then he uses this phrase, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work. God is not unjust so as to overlook your work. Now, I'm gonna run a risk here, but I will actually say, while that is true, God is actually unjust. And the way in which he is unjust is that he has offered rebellious, sinful people, redemption and grace through what his son has accomplished that we could not accomplish. Mercy where we deserve punishment and grace and goodness and blessing and riches where we deserved nothing and punishment. And so God's lack of justice is in our favor. And where in we are in our own lives have grown and walked with Christ, God does not forget what has been done. You know, you know, you have that feeling when you fail, when you have things that you mess up on, when you were not what you should have been, when you did not say what you should have said, when you look back and you have regrets or you have different things. In all of that, we find this great hope that God recognizes and sees all things, not only the things that we fail at. Heard the story of the math teacher that did, you know, 46 or so problems on the board and she messed up one of them intentionally and she was given the answers and all the kids in class started snickering and they all started raising their hand. They said, you messed up number 12. She said, yeah, but I got the other 45 of them right. I'm not gonna say anything about that. Now, like Frank shared in his testimony Sunday, wasn't that just a, a huge blessing Sunday? But like Frank said, we're, we're not gonna get to heaven and find that we're weighing out the good and the bad. None of us win in that scenario. But we'll find that God in his mercy has erased our bad through Christ. And in his grace, he's able to even see our good, which is like filthy rags in comparison to the righteousness of Christ. He's able to see and to in some way, you know, merit what we've done with grace and mercy even in that. And so we can have assurance and hope to move forward the last line I've got there for you, the, the writer ends basically by saying that we can show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. That God's calling for us is hope. You, you've got a picture of Martin Luther there on the back. I'll end with this little illustration that I, I read some years ago. Martin Luther, you might know something about his story. He believed that he was just destined for judgment from the very beginning. When he became a Catholic monk, he just didn't understand the gospel. Many people at that time couldn't have access to the scriptures or really understand what they truly said. They were in a system of trying to be good enough and do enough good and this and that, and he just couldn't live up to it. 
There were all kind of ways that he tried to torture and punish himself and make himself righteous, and he couldn't do it. When he finally got a chance to read the New Testament for the first time, he came to the book of Romans in Romans chapter 1. He read Paul's words, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, and he moved on a little bit, and he says, because it is from faith to faith, or faith from first to last. And the light came on that shook the foundations of the Western world when Martin Luther realized it's not about me, it's about Christ. And so Martin Luther began to lead other students and he began to allow priests that uh, realized they didn't have to remain celibate, they could actually marry nuns. And all these priests and nuns started, you know, having godly marriages together and, and being together in ministry. But Martin Luther had a group of students that he led and he said something that I've never forgotten. He'd been so encouraged by the grace of the gospel that he would somewhat joke with his students and he would say this, sin boldly. Now, I'm not encouraging you to go out and sin tonight. Don't quote me and say that that's what, don't send me emails. But there are some who would say that for a Christian, that in their own lives, there is a level, a merit to live up to, that if we're really honest, we will be driven to one of two places, denial or despair. And neither one of those roads are good. The hope for us is that Jesus Christ has walked the path that we were supposed to walk. And we don't have to live up to a standard that we can't live up to. We can place hope in Christ and it's only in walking behind where he leads, going where he'll go and realizing out of the love that we'd have for the grace and mercy we've been shown that God can do the work in us and through us that, uh, that he wants to do. And so in your failure, in your difficulty, in where you don't stack up to the standard that you know God would call you to, keep moving, keep fighting keep going and realize that even in your failure you can do that boldly because of Christ's mercy in your life let's pray together Lord we thank you for the graven name on Jesus's hands that we have when we have trusted in Jesus that all other religions in the world call us to do something, to be something, to know something. But the realization of Scripture is that our hope is in Christ who has done what we could not do, in you whose thoughts and ways are far above our ways and thoughts and knowledge. And so, Lord, can we realize the beauty of the gospel and not go backwards? Will you help us? Will you draw us to yourself and lead us? Give us a challenge and a drawing and a warning where we need it. And Father, when we find ourselves in despair, may we realize the hope that we need not be shaken from. Lord, would you encourage our hearts and allow us to walk with you where you lead. In Jesus' name, amen.